Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Warren Buffett notoriously said, buy when others are fearful. Entrepreneurs in a bear market do just that. They defy the odds and deploy outperforming ingenuity to leapfrog the status quo. Our guest today is Marcus Lianos, founder and chief investment officer of MJL, a fundamentally driven, research-focused, crypto-native hedge fund. He believes that every institutional portfolio should have some exposure to the blockchain and that given the specialized knowledge and purpose-built infrastructure required for this activity, traditional allocators have had difficulty accessing the opportunity set, making this market capital-starved and misunderstood. We agree. The fund's strategy focuses on blockchain-enabled software, generating real cash flows, and promising long runways for growth. These crypto-native businesses are going public much earlier in their life cycle than traditional startups, offering investors venture-like returns without compromising liquidity. To stand out from the crowd, an emerging manager needs to offer a clear differentiation in three core areas, team, thesis, and investment process. First, Marcus has over eight years of investment experience across private equity and hedge fund strategies, with a particular focus on banks and emerging fintech. Second, he is convinced that what the internet did for information transfer, blockchain will do for value transfer by making all units of value interoperable, programmable, and composable, and replacing middlemen with transparent middleware. And finally, he has outlined a token investment process blueprint that is one of the most comprehensive and detail-oriented I've seen in the space, complete with a proprietary token valuation framework. Marcus is also one of the most prolific crypto-native entrepreneurs I've met. Together with Archblock, the core contributor and incubator of the credit protocol TrueFi, he is working on bringing wholesale funding for community banks on-chain. His idea is to create a frictionless on-ramp for community banks and other institutions to access DeFi financing. I have truly enjoyed getting to know Marcus and exchanging ideas. He has also become a welcome addition to my expert network when discussing the banking industry, a topic that has come back front and center. Marcus holds a degree in finance and international politics from Georgetown University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So my story starts in Baltimore County, Maryland. I lived in a suburb, probably 30 minutes north of the city. My parents, when I was younger, they split up at a pretty young age. And I was effectively raised in a single mother household. And luckily, fortunately, my mother is unbelievably hardworking person. She always worked to make sure that my brother and I had the best education possible. That was something that she had always optimized for from a young age, something that we're both very grateful for. And it really shaped who I was. I would say growing up in the suburbs of Baltimore, it's very lacrosse and athletic heavy society. And for me, I was always a bookworm given my upbringing. I was always pretty interested in solving puzzles, building Legos, mathematics, which was kind of a natural progression from there. So I grew up in a family that really valued education. I think somewhere around when I was... 14 or 15, we moved to Washington, D.C. We felt that there was a greater challenge to be had. I ended up transferring to a school called Georgetown Prep. That indeed was quite a challenge. I think from an academic standpoint, my passions really started to form around the classics like Latin and history. So when I graduated high school, it was funny. I matriculated to Georgetown University, as you may know, and 
I originally planned to be a Latin major. I had no family in the finance industry. It was all somewhat of a foreign concept to me. However, my brother, who is through and through a mathematics person, he actually works in the credit space, very, very sharp and detail-oriented person. He started interning and eventually working at a firm called EJF Capital. So right after I graduated high school, I started interning at EJF. And I think it was within an hour that I really fell in love with the entire environment and to be more specific, the markets. So I started interning there at a very young age. I went to school right across the bridge. So pretty quickly what happened was I was working there every single day. And by my junior year, I was for all intents and purposes, a full-time analyst with the fund. So somewhere around, I studied finance and economics internationally at Georgetown. Those were my two majors. So graduated Georgetown, started at EJF Capital full-time officially in 2017. I was on the bank team there. And something interesting about EJF Capital is they're a financial services specific investor. So whereas I think a lot of my compatriots on the buy side, especially within crypto, have really found their foundation and footing within tech investing. I've come from a bit of an unconventional path in that I've spent the last decade investing in financial infrastructure, which I would argue is is a lot closer to what DeFi and digital assets is today. So I think that's that's a fairly good summary on background. I'm happy to dive into any part of that. I know that was a lot. No, it's actually interesting. There's a few things to unpack there. My first question is, did you like going to college or were you in a hurry to start working? Huh. It's a very good question because like as I'd mentioned, like learning and academics has always been something that's really interested to me. But I would say that once I started working at EJF, that really became my college, if that makes sense. When you spend your mornings and or early afternoons in portfolio management class taught by academics, and then you end up spending the next six hours at an actual fund, you start to realize pretty quickly that what's going to give you an edge in the future is the actual experience of being there and hearing everything that's said and hearing the problems and how they're solved. I think that's something that's very difficult to pick up without spending a considerable amount of time there. Yeah, that makes sense. And clearly, if it were taught in school, everyone would be a billionaire. So there's certainly something about being out there and knowing the difference and the nuances between the ivory tower of the academic world and what truly happens, including a lot of the behavioral biases that we witness every day in the business world. So financial services, will you say that the firm invested in financial services institutions or the infrastructure that powered or powers these institutions? Well, I think the strategy evolved over time. I shouldn't go into all the specifics of the strategies there, but I would say the firm is really built on the credit side. In 2008, post the 08 crisis, EJF bought just about a very, very large number of TARP notes. So if you think about the, the troubled asset relief program in the crisis when the treasury bailed out all the banks, the treasury ended up turning around and auctioning those for pennies on the dollar. And EJF's first big trade was aggregating all of that paper. And that's really was the bedrock of the firm. Now, when I joined, my first initiative was spinning up our equity platform, specifically a private equity platform. So me and my PM, we invested in 70 community banks. We raised three funds and we would buy anywhere from a nine to a 24-9 position in a community bank between 500 million or two or three billion in assets. And you would effectively make a trade where you're buying at a discount to book value, you're growing it, and you're selling it at the end of the day to a larger institution that can make an accretive purchase. So 
it was really a mix of strategies. We were always doing things on the credit side. We're always doing things just straight into banks on the equity side. But inevitably, somewhere around 2019, I really started building out the fintech vertical at the firm. And we started thinking a lot more about core processing systems within the banking system specifically and digital payments. So it really moved from the plumbing of our financial system and more regulated institutions towards fintech and what I would classify as the new infrastructure that's being built. And there is a reason why I asked this question, or several reasons. One is, I think in terms of an upbringing as a financial analyst, and I have friends who've gone down that path specifically of investing in banks, it works very differently than a traditional P&L. Like analyzing the financial statements of a financial services institution is very different. So it takes a slightly different mindset in terms of how the top part of the income statement works how leverage works, right? This inherently much more levered type business than your common sort of corporate. And being able to understand those nuances is very important. It's sort of lost on a lot of folks out there, especially in the crypto space, where a lot of business models are very bank-like. And so the ability to understand that is very important. The other thing is it makes sense that over time, you developed an interest and investment focus on the infrastructure, because I would assume in your value creation plans, when you took ownership or stakes in those community banks, a big part of rebuilding to par, it's actually buying at a discount and rebuilding to par and then flipping the investment is about internal efficiencies. And the way you achieve internal efficiencies is moving from manual to digital to automated, right? And you like to talk about the Wall Street API and, and how essentially banking 3.0 is the next layer of improvements on that. It makes a lot of sense. I could see the path there in, in your journey. Absolutely. And I think really where the light bulb went off. I mean, I've been involved in crypto for a long time personally, but I think where the light bulb went off was when I was spending all of my time in core processing systems and payments because I was meeting with these companies. And from time to time, it almost felt like I was missing something. I was wondering where, when you're investing in financials, you always have to be aware that there's different kinds of investors, right? Sometimes you invest in a name where you're underwriting the book value and a takeout for community bank but all of a sudden it ends up trading at 10 times book value because Andreessen or one of these tech investors come in and they fundamentally use a different underwriting framework, right? So absolutely. I mean, for us, I think financial services investing has also created a bit more of a robust framework around markets in general and market structure because the way I would classify in my investing style in financial institutions is from a liability-driven standpoint. What I mean by that is we very often put on our investment banker hats to understand how a balance sheet can be optimized. When you think about a lot of what happens in credit markets, you can ultimately, and I know you read the piece, the syndication API piece, ultimately, it's often driven by global or US-specific capital rules and regulations of the big money center banks. And there tends to be pretty large ripple effects every time that happens across everything. Before that was specialty finance, then it became fintech, and now we're in DeFi, where you're seeing the same thing. So it's pretty clear how your professional DNA developed, and it was very on the ground, rolling up your sleeves, going there after classes, before classes. So that really prepared you, I would say, for a lot of what you're doing now in a seat where you're investing and you're also innovating as to the investment workflow, how you're trying to solve for problems when it comes to that industry in a more efficient manner. Were there any noteworthy setbacks 
on your path to creating you know your businesses right now that helped you grow? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I don't think there's an easy answer there. I think if you've started your own fund, so I'm sure you're keenly aware of this, but whatever your plan is, just, I guess, assume that nothing's going to go according to plan if you're getting into this business, I would say. When we started, I think a lot of funds will have a pretty big seed that they come out with. Usually they'll have like an Apollo or someone that gives them operating capital and they'll they'll fill you up with 20 or 30 million in assets and you can really build a team around it. For us, it wasn't that at all. I'm fortunate enough to have two co-founders and partners in Dominic Salvo and Sean McElrath. And Dominic was really always around because he was my analyst. But Sean was someone that's pretty important today that I didn't meet for a long time. So when I started this, you know, I was... 26. I had left a very comfortable situation and I found myself alone planning an entire business. And it's interesting because part of the reason it was such a great learning experience was because you had a very large amount of assets and strategies and you had very few people. Now, what that sort of turned into for me was I would both be wearing a hat where I am the senior associate on this fund, but I'm also handling all of the liaising with every bit of the back office. So I was marking positions, making sure trades were settled, making sure docs get through. And that was just one aspect of my job. So I felt that when I came out and I started a fund, I already had everything that I needed. Now, thank God I had that experience because it's worked wonders for us. But when you really go to do it and you're managing third-party capital, I think you really need to be prepared for to increase your bandwidth to a degree. Because when you're doing all the things at once, it just becomes... It becomes very difficult. You ultimately need a team and you need contributors that are really good at what they do. Agreed. And it's something that in the investment world, I'd say corporate structure and processes and management are not necessarily the the first thing that comes to mind, especially since the structures are usually smaller. So you don't necessarily get to develop this notion of building an organization, trying to think optimally around processes, but they are very, very necessary. So it sounds like you had co-founders and how did the group come together initially in your current effort? So it is a bit of a story. So I left in March or April of 2021 from my old firm, started what at that point was Synapse Capital. We ended up going through a few iterations. I started the first one with my brother. We ended up splitting ways and doing other things. He's spending a lot of time in the credit side and I've kind of spending time in the equity side, which makes a lot of sense given our background. I was sort of going about it alone for quite a while. Dominic was pretty important that he was always there to help. I didn't meet Sean in a professional capacity until about a month before we launched the fund, which was March of 2022. So we had been dry running the strategy with PropCap internally for a while. By then, we had been really getting everything together. And the story there is interesting. I loosely knew Sean through my neighbor at Georgetown, actually, in my dorm room. So Sean and him were very good friends. He's from the area. And he used to always come and visit. So we would see each other. And we weren't super close, but, but we hung out from time to time. And I got reintroduced to him somewhere around the end of 2022. And my buddy, Taylor, said to me, you know, you should really meet this guy, Sean. I think you've met him before. He's doing a lot in the crypto space. You guys might be able to work together. So I met with him and I was kind of blown away off the bat just by his how complimentary his skill set was. And I think that's something that I would underline for our firm in general. Like we've, I think one of our biggest strengths is the three of us have a very complimentary skill sets. Whereas I have spent a lot of time in fundamental analysis and the risk management and more formal like 40 act fund, larger scale hedge fund strategies. 
Sean's background was computer science. So he was a dev for a long time, Web 2 and Web 3. And he ultimately started a firm called Pareto Technologies, which is still around today. And they raised to do quant trading. And Sean was actually one of the earlier people to start arbitraging across exchanges, both across exchanges and across international borders. Obviously not as early as our friend SBF, but he's had quite a bit of experience in systematic trading and and quant strategies because over time they had to shift quite a few times. So we kind of have on one side security selection, on the other side, systematic strategies and execution. So it goes really well together. Yeah, it it shows in your approach and how you depict it. There's a certain almost engineering-like quality to how you explain your investment process. And I've been fortunate and lucky to be able to see some of those diagrams that you've graciously shared with me. It There's an engineering-like quality to it. And I could see the influence of both your world as well as the quant trading and engineering mindset that, that probably comes from Sean. One of the things I always look at, whether I'm going to partner with people or I look at a team, first of all, I think solopreneurs, some people do it really well. I think it's very hard. It's hard enough to start a business and doing it by yourself. Usually, even if they're not co-founders, you'd need to find people who are there from the start who are really, really instrumental. And the notion of non-overlapping skill sets the complementarity. I ask founders when I look to invest and by no means a big fish, but I do have a very stringent due diligence process. I will ask for psychometric tests because I want to see what the personalities are and how they're going to work together. It's important also to see also a history of having worked together or shared ability to trust and be accountable to one another. And I really appreciate you saying that, by the way, because that's something that really resonates with us. And we actually discuss it pretty openly all the time. We've all worked multiple jobs, right? And it's really hard to find people that you trust, that you get along with, and that also are complimentary and really competent in what they do. And we're lucky enough to have the three of us checking all those boxes. And at the end of the day, we love working together. And I think if we didn't, there's no way we would be here right now to a degree. Because when things get choppy, especially in the markets, that's when you as a team are tested oftentimes. And we've been pretty good about that. We're very open. We're very accountable to each other. And it's very rare that blame is deflected in our conversations. That's good. Open conversation, open kimono, get complete with the reality of what you're dealing on a daily basis. What was the initial investment or trading thesis behind your digital equity fund? And is it still the same? Is it different now? So I think the thesis is similar. The strategy has obviously evolved over the last two years. I would say... I already knew that I was going to do the digital equity fund. I've been working on something similar internally, really more towards the stablecoin credit and yield space. But to me, I've always been an equity guy. And when I looked at some of these digital assets, especially within the token space, especially on the application layer, I was was pretty blown away by the way they were being valued, the economics that were inherent to these assets, and how similar they were to existing models. The example I always use is Nexus Mutual. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nexus Mutual, but it's a decentralized mutual insurance company where anyone in DeFi can KYC, become a part of the mutual. They can contribute capital to the balance sheet and they can insure a position against smart contract risk or hacks. Now we can get more in the weeds on the thesis there, but in short, I saw an insurance company with a 2.5% return on assets, unleveraged, which 
in the context of financial services, that's a pretty good way to gauge the earnings power of an organization. And it was trading at a pretty deep discount to book. And there was a reason for that. There was sort of a special nuanced situation that only exists within digital assets. So when I looked at, at Nexus Mutual, I saw something I could underwrite a fundamental long thesis on. And I could also underwrite a shorter term special situation where we could get taken out by a Dutch tender. It all of a sudden felt to me like we weren't talking about crypto, right? So that was sort of my entree into it when I started to understand how these things were being valued and the real potential for them with, in the context of our financial infrastructure. And I sort of had come to understand that through all the work I'd been doing in fintech. I had been pretty disillusioned with that space because like I'd said before, trying to figure out what I was missing. But at the end of the day, I think the way a lot of those companies are being valued can be problematic. And I think a lot of companies, both in crypto and fintech, are solutions searching for a problem. And I think especially within fintech, you have a lot of situations where the actual infrastructure and movement of money has, is not at all changed. It all comes back to the core processing system and a community bank somewhere. But like the interface has been touched up a bit. So for me, like it felt like fintech wasn't actually solving anything that it was promising to solve. And DeFi was significantly more interesting. And you had assets that were misunderstood. And you had assets that were valued at, at multiples that I didn't see. I still don't see as sustainable. And you have projects that are really growing sustainably and they generate tons of cash. I think it was just really hard to ignore that. And I didn't really see it as digital assets versus equities. I just saw it as a more interesting company or business to invest in. Makes sense. That's a very clear approach, right? And I like the fact that it's very specific and it's focused on covering value, both on the financial side, as well as truly peeling the onion as to what's really underneath the hood. To your point, there are a lot of plays out there, especially in fintech, that are just really building a wrapper around what is essentially preservation of the status quo. What capital did you start with? What investors did you target initially? How did you go about pitching your project? The initial capital was definitely a journey. You know what they say, the first million is the hardest, and it certainly is. The partners, we all put it money into the fund. And then a lot of it was primarily friends and family. We had a few colleagues through the street that we knew that came into the fund and brought friends in. But I'd say a majority of our investors by count and by dollars were friends and family that we knew. So post that, that was probably early 2022. And then we were lucky enough through the second half of 2022 to start receiving subscriptions from both double downs from existing LPs that really had faith in us and also from new investors that were more institutional and larger. So we were lucky enough to grow throughout all of 2022. And that's got us really excited for what's to come in 23. What were the main objections during the fundraising process? I think the main objections are just that when you're an emerging manager and you're starting out in this space, the people, you have a very slim window that you have to target from a marketing perspective. People that really understand crypto, like the OGs, they tend to think they can do it better than everyone else. Maybe they can. I think the people that are less, most of the people you're going to go after are less familiar with blockchain and crypto assets. So when you talk to them, their eyes glaze over, no matter how clear you're going to make it or, or how well you can explain it. At the end of the day, it's really hard for people to get past the mental block of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, no inherent value, fraud. And I think at the beginning, that's just something that you had to deal with. You have to be able to explain that and educate people on that side of things in order to get your initial capital. Now today, we don't have to have those conversations anymore. We find it a lot more efficient to 
put up value into the world or, or put up value to our existing LPs and potential LPs and educate them on a deeper level, guide them through the ecosystem. And I think naturally you end up finding people that self-select that make a lot more sense. And presumably some of them see value in entering the streets when there's blood on those streets. You know, one of the challenges with, as we refer to as animal spirits, is the paradox of people back in 2021 and the first half of 2022 being very, very, very excited when the conditional expected return on the asset class was bound to be negative, right, for a slew of reasons. And so I think very few investors think in terms of conditional expected return, whereas if you position yourself right now, it is bound to be positive. If you have patient capital, if you don't have a liquidity issue. I think it's probably and arguably one of the more exciting times to get in, I would say, even if you compare it with a prior crypto freeze or winter, because I think the existential aspects were much more prevalent at the time. I think it's less an issue of existence today. It's about execution and it's about exactly what it needs to look like in order to achieve its full potential. I think there are naysayers out there, but I think there's very few folks that are really questioning the existence in itself. And I think it's important to remind listeners in a context where we have a lot of regulatory clampdown right now. We have a lot of negative headlines. And I think this is due process and this is pain that the industry needs to go through and it will come out stronger. And the people who are positioned, who were positioned to have positive convexity for these types of events, right? Regulatory oversight are actually going to fare better, right? It was painful up front, but now they will do better. And by the way, that makes a lot of sense because when you look like if we were to walk through our portfolio, uh, quite a few of our names have regulatory tailwinds actually based on the policy that's being sort of put out there today. And that sort of comes from my own experience in that we're a regulatory event-driven fund, right? There's a reason that we're located at MJL Capital in Washington, D.C. It's because we want to be as close as possible to the Hill. We want to be as close as possible to policy that's being formed. And at the end of the day, that's a major driver of returns in the space, both negative returns for the majors or whoever the regulators are going after right now, but almost always there's a winner. Whenever there's a loser, there's a winner. And we saw that post-FTX with the migration to more decentralized infrastructure, which is which is something that we've been actively investing in over the last couple of months. Yeah, and I think it's it goes beyond just crypto. I think investors will be rewarded in the decade to come, partly through their ability to really understand and read the tea leaves of what is going on, both at the federal and state level in the US and globally as well. I think there's never been an era where the importance of governmental decision-making and in some level control over many more aspects of our lives, which we saw sort of very much firsthand during the pandemic, right? Governments have a lot more control and influence in our lives than they used to. And as an investor, you need to be able to navigate that. And I think crypto is a manifestation of that, especially at the moment. I want to tie into the operational considerations of starting a crypto native fund. How much more complex is fund formation? And then let's talk a little bit about sort of the operations aspect, right? Custody, marking your books, risk managing them, what types of systems you had to put in place. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off by saying that 
I was able to learn a lot, fortunately, before I left my former employer because I was actually setting up a very similar vehicle within that fund. And it was a large 40-act fund. And it was pretty clear to me after quite a while that it just wasn't compatible unless you built something that was purpose-built for investing in digital assets. There are certain, not necessarily regulatory gray areas, but there's quite a few questions when you're starting to set up your fund operationally in crypto. And we can kind of talk about this all day. Now, what we did was we almost kind of went backwards, I would say. If I did it again, I may do it different. But the first thing we did when we started MJL Capital was we onboarded the infrastructure of the billion dollar fund. We have not one, but two qualified custodians. Both are US-based, both are insured. We use Coinbase Prime and we use BitGo as our qualified, more centralized custodians. We're onboarding right now to Copper, which I feel is a pretty strong offering. It's something that's very interesting to us from a counterparty risk perspective. A lot of time was spent finding the right custodians because as a US-based fund, I think there's a lot of problematic nuances in your options, especially if you're doing what we're doing. It took us a long time to find people that could custody the assets that we hold. Then it took us a long time to find people that could trade the assets that we want to invest in. Then it took us a long time to figure out how to you know, compliantly and securely interact with DeFi. So it's definitely been a process and the industry is evolving in real time as we do this. A lot of these tools weren't available when we first started. So I would say custody is probably the first thing that you're thinking about when you go to do this. The next thing you're thinking about is your fund admin. And there's a few pretty well-known choices on the market today. We use NAV Consulting, which we've always liked the experience there. The admin is extremely important because A, it's the agreement that's going to be the most impactful on your operations and legal liability. And B, the admin is going to be a secondary source of truth oftentimes on an accounting basis. Because when you're running a crypto fund, for us, we're pretty concentrated. So we'll own 10 to 12 names at any given time across a range of wallets and blockchains. So it can be tough at times, but it's definitely doable. I think for other funds that are doing more high-frequency strategies and they're holding 100-plus assets across 100 wallets, accounting can be an absolute disaster. So yeah, admin is kind of the other part, and we've always had a good time with NAV and, and figuring that out. And I think besides that, the other thing you have to think about is legal structuring. If you're an emerging manager, I think there's a little leeway in the exempt reporting advisor cutout. But it's very difficult. Like, I think if you're a fund over 150 million or you're like a traditional 40 act fund trying to get in this space, I would say it's very difficult to get exposure to the assets we own. And that's really, in short, exactly why we started this company, because these are the most interesting ones. By the time they get on Coinbase or Gemini, it's usually too late. And not many people are configured to actually participate. I think you had mentioned something pretty accurate that you notice more of an engineering angle to our firm. And that's, that's very conscious. We like to say to projects that we can help Web3 projects in ways that other funds simply can't. We're very, very involved. We run validators. We run indexers. We sit on advisory committees. We've worked on some of the earliest M&A transactions in crypto. And then obviously, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about what we're doing with Adapter Digital at some point. What's very helpful, especially for listeners, is you give a, a very comprehensive and thorough sort of overview of, of all the pieces, right? I mean, there's, there's obviously a legal structure to your point, and there's operational considerations. And I think you've outlined how you went about it, and, and certainly some of the, the key vendors that I think by now have become relatively mainstream for an endeavor such as yours. 
but it's good to reiterate and also understand your satisfaction with the various products out there. In terms of building human capital, how big is, talked about the founding team, how big is the team today and how are you going about convincing people to work with you and to join a space that, quite frankly, has gotten a lot of bad press lately. Yeah. So today, the team officially is the three of us. So we are all three full-time. We are bringing on two part-time people right now, one on the adapter digital side of things, one on the MJL capital side of things, more operational role. I would say sourcing human capital is its pretty difficult. It's not something that we actively spend a lot of time on. We just don't have the bandwidth for it. We often meet people. We're on the phone every single day. Obviously, there's been a lot of transition in 2022 that's lent itself to you know a few people reaching out. But I think for us, like I mentioned before, something that we really, really care about and where we attribute a lot of our success is the intangible of culture. So I think we really want to work with people that we want to be in the trenches with. I think that most people that we meet sort of feel that from our end. And a lot of people really appreciate sort of the vibe that we have when we talk about the business, we approach the business how we settle disagreements. It's a pretty healthy environment. So I think just the culture when you talk to us appeals to a lot of people. And then I think the other aspect here is there aren't that many funds doing what we're doing. And I think of the funds doing what we're doing, not many of them have a real tangible plan to get institutional and scale and really not just realize this big trade. I think a lot of funds that deal in the liquid token space they're really configured at the end of the day to make a 50x trade in one cycle and sort of get out. I mean, what we've always said to each other and, and what we really care about is building a strategy that will sustain itself for decades because we feel that that's the horizon or, or the runway for compounding returns here. And the most important thing for us is to really survive and to cut out large volatile moves to the downside. And I think if you can do that, the upside returns tend to take care of themselves. We tend to be pretty good at security selection. We always have been. That's always been our strength. But really where we spend a lot of time innovating within the firm today is on the risk management side and really making sure that we're running a strategy that's sustainable and scalable to 100 million or more. That makes sense. And that's going to be music to the ears of existing and potential investors. I think the science of risk management and all the different facets thereof, right? There's market risk, there's idiosyncratic risk, counterparty risk seems to be front and center in what you've outlined. And it's very much part of the investment process. And I think, again, it's sort of been lost in translation in this new asset class, whereas TradFi, I think it's just par for the course. And the firms that really thrive are the ones that outperform in that area. So we've talked about how you identify monetization opportunities with this very much a fundamental valuation framework. Can you get into a little bit more detail about your methodology and how differentiated you believe that approach is? Absolutely. So from a security selection standpoint, we tend to invest in what we understand. I would say that is the first rule of our investing process. I think there's a lot of very interesting opportunities out there. Just open your Twitter feed. You'll probably see 50 that are interesting to you. But I think for us, we want to invest in simple models that are really easy to understand and where we can sketch out the downside. I think it's harder to find names where you can have a level of certainty on the downside in crypto than you would think. So naturally, our portfolio tends to slant towards you know, bond-like instruments, tangible book value names, special situations. 
we're not really buying like the consensus long that everyone else is. That's first and foremost. And I would say the other thing that we really look for from a fundamental standpoint, it feels like this space has gone from zero to one to take a tealism over the last four or five years. But I don't think that the same strategies that have worked thus far are going to continue to work. It feels like when you meet with these projects on the ground and you're as involved as we are, what we really care about more today is can a company go from one to 10? We're less interested in zero to one. We want to know companies that can actually, or projects that can actually scale, find mutually beneficial touch points, solve real problems. Because I think if you want to get the same returns that you were able to harness over the last few years, the standards are changing, the drivers are changing, the catalysts are changing, and you really have to adjust your investment process to take that into account. No, I agree. And I think it's going to be a change in investing paradigm, again, not just in crypto, but across the board, which is we are moving from a world where there was an abundance of financial capital to a world where it's certainly less abundant. I wouldn't say it's scarce, but it's less abundant. And so, you know, in the decade, you know, through the end of the pandemic, really, a lot of investment dollars at the early stage went to funding product and engineering. There was a belief that if you built it, they would come. And in terms of the human capital, premium went to the engineers, the hackers. And I think in the next decade, the premium will go. I think the real alpha is that one to 10. In other words, executing the zero to one, is that easy? No, it's not. But on some level, technology development is somewhat commoditized. We're not looking at incredibly complex technology stacks at the end of the day. We are definitely looking at good execution and protocol design and things like that. But the real alpha on a going forward basis is going to be in teams that are really in sync with product market fit who can actually take a business and create engagement, find the beachheads to create the stickiness, the engagement, understand how to drive those metrics. This is not new. If you look at companies, let's say, for example, in social media, companies like Snap or TikTok or you name it, they look at it, they look at marketing and product development with respect to engagement and revenue generation as engineering. It's almost like quant trading. It's like figuring out, well, if I highlight this button in a certain way, we're going to get 20% more clicks on it. And this will result in this many more page views that we can monetize in this following way, right? And the same thing applies with especially retail-driven financial services in DeFi, right? If you put a product out there and suddenly you're moving away from this purely speculative-driven bubble that we're in, you have to deliver real value and you have to deliver it on a consistent basis. So I think it makes a lot of sense that the investment thesis is going to be different than it was. And the same things that worked aren't necessarily going to work on a going forward basis. Absolutely. And like I think a core belief of ours as we approach the space is the concept of power laws. I think it's both empirically true historically, and it'll likely continue to be true that the vast majority of market cap activity and profitability, which is a new and emerging concept in DeFi, by the way, is concentrated in a very small amount of players. And you tend to see some common denominators, and that common denominator tends to be a stickier relationship with the end customer. I think a lot of people have spent a lot of brain power talking about the FAT protocol thesis and whether all the value accrues to the HTTP layer, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, again, 
I think financial physics still applies. I don't think human behavior has changed. And when you look at something like Didex moving to its own app chain, or you look at something like Uniswap, there's a reason they're being valued the way they are today. The market is telling you something. And I think that's something that we listen to. Uh, We spend most of our time, if you were to divide it into two things today, we're investing in what we see as extremely dominant players in their subsector, maybe 90% market share or more that will continue to stay dominant, continue to generate cash, are truly profitable. Because I think there's a bit of a data problem on what profitable means in crypto and have been left for dead and are trading at very low valuations after 2022. The other half of what we do is we spend a lot of time thinking about new and emerging use cases uh, for crypto. So those are things like decentralized social media, maybe token incentivized physical infra. There's always you know a flavor of the month and a flavor of the year. But I think what I would highlight is at the end of the day, you'll never see us invest in a fork of Uniswap on another chain that's trading at discount on a valuation basis. Because to us, we want to invest in winners that are actually innovating and solving real problems. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. How capital intensive is the business? I mean, I'm assuming you're one time invested. Do you run any leverage on the funds? We run absolutely no leverage on the fund. In terms of capital intensive of the business, are you referring to more like MGL Capital, the LLC and adapter, or do you mean like the fund itself? The fund itself. The fund itself. I mean, we're today we're sitting on decent cash position. We're generally long biased. I would say that. I would find it a little bit daunting to approach the asset class on a levered basis, you know, just to the inherent characteristics. The way I look at it, you're really trying to buy these very, very long dated, you know, call options or perpetual call options, right? And so valuing the underlying as well as assessing if the inherent implied market uh, volatility is correct, right? I think those are the two main parameters there. That is precisely right. I mean, when you saw the fallout of FTX in 2022, it wasn't that long ago, probably 60 days ago, we were looking at names that were trading at discounts to their initial seed round four years ago. And these are projects that are well-capitalized, have a real business where we are actually creating businesses with them. So it's, yeah, I think at the end of the day, being on the ground and just looking for market inefficiencies is they're two things that go together. Liquidity management, overlooked in TradFi times, certainly in crypto. Do you need to be able to get in and out these nine to 15 names that you're invested in, highly concentrated positions, or is it less relevant? How important is it for you to be able to source liquidity? Well, I think that's a question that is asked before we ever make an investment. So I won't go fully into the weeds, but we have a full pre-mortem, we call it, which is if this goes wrong or what are the things that could go wrong and how are we going to address them before we even put a dollar to work? We spend a lot of time at that point outlining exactly how this all needs to fit together. In terms of liquidity, we're long biased. I'd say we rebalance and trade a fair amount. I mean, some months we'll make 10, 20 small trades. Some months we'll make 200. I think it depends on what the market is doing. It depends on whether our theses are playing out. But I think from a peace of mind and risk management standpoint, our goal is to be 90% plus liquid, exitable within days at all times, regardless of our scale. And that's something that's very important to us. If you just look at something like just yesterday, I won't get into the exact name, but one of our names moved 200%. It actually was not on a thesis we were investing on. We decided to exit the position and it had very quickly grown to a size where if it was significantly bigger, it would have been hard to get out of. We would have had to go to OTC or 
or something of that nature. But luckily we had planned ahead of time and we were, we knew exactly where to go. So I think liquidity is very important. And for us as an emerging manager, it's only going to become more important as we scale. Well, hopefully the 200% were up. <laughs> the math doesn't add up if it's not. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on capacity constraints across different sources of return? So I'd say within the digital equity fund, we would have everything is relative to the size of the market in my mind because of how volatile it is. So today we could put 50 to 100 million to work. I would say in a bull market, we could go higher than that. It really depends on the market environment. And when you think about underwriting in the way we do, whether it's an individual investment or just the answer to this question, we tend to assume that we remain in a bear market and the crypto market does not grow as a whole. That's always a conservative assumption we make. So yeah, I would say we could probably do 50 to 100 million here relatively efficiently. That's great. And, and the way I look at it is we're probably at the trough and these are probably some of the toughest, both liquidity and just overall size of FTVs out there. So if you build it with that conservative assumption, but then again, given the return profile and the inherent gearing in the positions, obviously it's very rare to run a stock portfolio when you have a stock that has moves like such as the one you described. So I think you could certainly look at generating a lot of dollar P&L, even on a reasonably sized AUM. Yeah, absolutely. And you used the word convexity earlier, and that's actually a word that we use quite a bit, asymmetric and convex return profiles. That's really what this portfolio is at the end of the day. We want to outperform significantly on the upside and equal or outperform on the downside. And if we can do that, I think we'll always be in a good position. And one other thing I did wanted to mention is just about sort of 2022 and some of the dynamics there. I think at first we thought we were unlucky, but now we've come to realize that we were extremely fortunate to open our fund in 2022, what I would classify as one of the worst possible times. I mean, if you look at where the market was at the end of March, it's really been straight down since there. And I think our ability to get through this, continue to outperform and generate returns has only made us stronger. And when you're in your first 30 or 60 days of a fund, I don't think there's a lot of people that have had to deal with the risk management storm that 2022 created. I mean, if you go to every single aspect of a fund's risk management, whether it's operational, idiosyncratic, portfolio level, liquidity, et cetera, every single one hit in 22. And we successfully navigated those. And today, I think it really accelerated our evolution way faster than it would have otherwise been. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to really serve us well over time. I agree with that. I think there's a premium that will accrue to be able to deploy liquidity in those times. And if you are able through articulating the thesis, convincing investors, those investors who join in at this stage will be rewarded that liquidity premium. So in general, I like to talk about the future in the space and get your thoughts. But one thing I'm very interested in, because I do think it's part of the future, is what you're doing with Adapter. And I wanted to dive a little bit more into how that got going. I could see the ties into your own background and your understanding of the banking space. But walk us through where you see the potential there and what the business is about. Yeah, absolutely. So just for the second question first. Adapter Digital is an on-chain fund manager, and we act as a bridge between off-chain, what is referred to as real-world assets in the crypto world, what I would refer to as just credit, and on-chain investors, and especially DAOs. So the story there, it's an interesting story. As I mentioned earlier, we build businesses with the companies we invest in. We're very close partners, and we're very involved in their ecosystems. And we had approached TrueFi really shortly after starting the firm 
on the advisory side because we thought there was some strategic levers that they could pull. Very quickly formed a close relationship with the team. I would give a quick shout out to Ryan Roddenbaugh and Bill Wolf and Paul Jong, who are the best of the best. Formed a very close relationship with them and spent a lot of time on the phone talking about how the space is going to come together and where the protocol fits in. And I think from a very early time, our thesis was real world assets are something that's a very long growth vertical, something that's very needed within crypto and kind of the really the purest form of what all of these lending protocols are trying to do, they should be in real world asset. At the time, most of these lending platforms were strictly doing market maker loans. So you might've heard about this. I know you spoke to Icebreaker, which I really enjoyed. They're doing something similar in offering an alternative, but most of the space was loans to reputable market makers. And that kind of makes sense because if you're going to lend uncollateralized basis in crypto to an anonymous person, A, they can't be anonymous and B, how do you trust that they're going to pay you back? And I think the market naturally conformed around market makers like Alameda because they're very visible. They had a pretty acute need for on-chain liquidity, which is a pretty unique need when you really think about it. And I think capital just kind of conformed around a standard structure for them to lend. Like for us, we never thought that this was an extremely value add. A lot of these deals were being subsidized by token dilution. Doesn't matter what the platform was, they all did it. So we really started spending a lot of time positioning protocols we are investing in for a more regulated, institutional, and stable future. So kind of at the same time as this, if you're familiar with MakerDAO, you may have seen that they have considerably scaled their real-world asset strategy. And one of the first deals they did was with a bank called Huntington Valley Bank, which was recently acquired by um, First Citizens in Mansfield, Pennsylvania. Now, what they did was a very, what I'll consider a vanilla transaction and in the off-chain world, but something that for me was a bit of a paradigm shift in the on-chain world. They entered into a simple bank participation. So banks and community banks, they syndicate and participate loans every single day. If they're growing very quickly and they don't have the capacity to lend, they'll sell parts of that loan to other banks, oftentimes competitors, and they'll remain, they'll retain some sort of economics. Now, today within DeFi, I would classify the real world asset space or really the treasury allocation function within crypto and DAOs is highly skewed towards volatile assets. And you're starting to see this big rotation from volatile assets and their own native token into more conservative assets. So we saw an opportunity for a mutually beneficial touch point between the two worlds, which I think is, is pretty rare. For banks, they can, they can unleash the capital of DeFi. They can get cheaper capital. They can create a lot of flexibility on their balance sheet. And for lenders within crypto, they're able to acquire an asset that is extremely conservative, which is pretty difficult to find. You have a lot of people today sitting in USDC, but they don't have anything to do with it. And when you look at some of the largest lending markets out there, they're yielding 1%, 2%. Well, a treasury is yielding 4 or 5 today, right? So I think we see like a, a pretty large opportunity to fill a hole in this space by doing these deals. And we're going to put out a report, and I know you were able to read it, but it feels like this is just the beginning. Certainly, from a scale standpoint, absolutely. You talk about this captive stablecoin owners or holders as one set of constituents that are not necessarily able to access the full spectrum of both term structure as well as credit spectrum of opportunities, risk spectrum, right? Because one of the things I've personally struggled with as, as I've been diving into the on-chain credit space is really, if you look at 
the efficiencies brought upon by the technology itself. It is not sufficient in and of itself in order to drive adoption. For adoption to occur, you need to address acute pain points, right? On the one side, from what you're saying, you're getting investors who can't have access to assets, access to those assets, right? And you are benefiting along the way from all the things that being on-chain using a programmatic workflow that strips out all the efficiencies that come from the manual or sort of arcane process in existence today. Not to mention all the post-transactional reporting accountability in real time, which matters when you're lending, like having access to that data at your fingertips, time to insight is obviously shortened. And then on the other side, you're helping existing constituents with their own business. But I really think that unless you're able to do that, which is, I think, the value proposition, I was very interested in speaking to you about this, is there. But short of that, the world of lending today as it exists works well. There's a tremendous amount of money being generated. And without an acute pain point, it's hard to see how the adoption curve can really steepen unless you're tackling those very specific issues. And that's why also those strategies initially will be smaller capacity strategies, hopefully higher return, because they're fulfilling needs that are not mainstream yet. And I think then, once you have a blueprint for this, I think the traditional world would look at it and maybe pick apart the pieces that they're interested in. Absolutely. I would agree across the board. I mean, something that the way we see it is there's sort of a barbell taking shape. You have more emerging credit that is difficult to access, being originated on chain and being invested in by off-chain, more traditional credit funds. And a good example of this is something like a Credix or a Goldfinch, where they're able to bring deals that are subscale that are actually pretty high quality, depending on which one. I think there's a good amount of adverse selection here. But they're able to bring a deal that is much smaller than would otherwise be feasible off-chain. When you think about how the credit markets work, I think I use a firm as an example in, in the write-up. They were able to create a standard for financing Pelotons, right? That's 80% of their business at the end of the day. And the reason they were able to do that and execute that business and accrue the benefits of accessing the capital markets is because they were able to do it at a sufficient scale within a framework that was palatable for very large investors. And they were able to follow that up and produce to continue to create shelves. I think within DeFi, there's a major opportunity to bring more one-off deals and smaller deals. And the reason that is the case is because they don't have to pay lawyers, investment bankers, really very high fixed cost sort of services. Where are you in the process of standing up adapter and going forward with executing on the vision? So we are pretty far along, actually. So we announced our partnership officially mid-October or so. I think it's been two or three months. We have begun setting up all the entities. I think we're almost finished there as of today. We have our first bank. We've signed a letter of an LOI with them, a former LOI. We have a few more banks in the pipeline. I think really what we're looking for today are lenders. We will be approaching Maker and some of the other large DeFi protocols, that, especially those that are either spinning up a stable coin or running a stable coin, because I think there's a very natural need there. But that's where we are today. We're bringing on someone part-time to help on some of the operational aspects of this. And we're moving pretty quickly where we could have a deal together tomorrow. It's just a matter of when we can fill out the lending side. That's great to hear. And as we wrap up our conversation today, 
I wanted to touch on this project because it's thought leaders such as yourself who understand the real traditional world of lending and how credit markets function that are modernizing it. And your grasp of the subject matter is is evident from our conversation. So I'm encouraged because, when again, when I think about the future of the industry, this is what's needed, right? It's not just a pure technology or innovation angle, and it's not just the opportunistic sort of TradFi play on blockchain and really pandering to the narrative there. It's entities and groups and entrepreneurs out there who are putting all the pieces together. And look, is it going to be straightforward? No, as you know, there's kinks to work out, but you're planting the seeds here for something that, at least in an addressable market, is significant enough that is worthy of the endeavor. It's worthy of the effort. So I command you for putting it together. It sounds like you have an awful lot on your plate. You're running the digital equity fund you're building this new credit business, how do you manage your time and how do you ensure that this is going to be successful at the end of the day? You know, I think it's a challenge at the end of the day. I think something that I kind of talked about how in 2022, there was a bit of a trial by fire and where we were, we sort of forged efficiencies internally. And I think we were able to get organized enough to a granular level that we were able to free ourselves up. And I think that's something that we're obsessive about it's constantly reorganizing, constantly tinkering and, and optimizing our process so it can be as efficient as possible. So I think that is a major part of why we're able to do this. I think secondarily, we are going to be bringing on more people. But at the end of the day, it's interesting. The fund is something that we live and breathe. There's no time blocking for that business. I think, I think at the end of the day, that's something that we're just thinking about 24-7. And I think for Adapter, it really lends itself into what we do in the fund already. And there's quite a bit of overlap. And something I would highlight is, again, we take a operator, more engineer-like focus to thesis creation oftentimes. And building this business has given us insights and alpha into how this space is going to evolve that literally you just cannot glean it in any other way than, than being the operator. So for us, we almost see it as due diligence to a degree. Yeah, makes sense. Look, you have an incredibly compelling story. You've been very articulate in the way you've communicated and I would say even for a non-crypto native or non-credit native audience or a non-investing native audience, it comes across really nicely. So I'm encouraged that you will see capital coming in. I think you have a compelling case. I want to thank you today for spending time with me and discussing this and outlining your vision. really want to congratulate you on getting something up and running in one of the toughest periods, both at a macro level and technology. So thank you very much for spending some time with us today. And thank you very much for having me on again. It's really been a pleasure and would love to come back. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.